I want to pray right now uh, for our time this morning. We're going to be back in Romans 9. And um, uh, I just want to ask the Lord specifically to open our hearts, our minds. Um, we're going to be going through a lot of stuff this morning. I don't know if we'll get through the whole message today, but uh, um, we're talking about cultivating a burden for the lost. And it kind of tied in with... Um, uh, Dave's announcement about the class coming up, and you'll see how that, that works out. But let's just ask the Lord to uh, um, really bless our, our time. Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, really focus on your word this morning. Lord, this is uh, meaty information that we're going to be going through for the next few months, actually, here in Romans chapter 9. There's a lot of profound truths and hard to understand things. And Lord, we just pray that you would uh, uh, give us the mind of Christ, that you would allow the Holy Spirit to communicate to our hearts, to our minds, um, your truth. And so we look forward to our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Isn't it a blessing to get together with the body of Christ and open up your personal copy of the Bible? If you don't have one, there's there one in there in the chair in front of you or behind you. And uh, I pray that you've come this morning ready uh, to study the Bible, to study the Word of God. Um, I mean, the music is nice, but this is really what we're, our church is about, is, is taking the Bible, opening it up, and uh, really mining out the truths that we find there. And I pray that... Um, when you come on Sunday morning, you don't just come for the music or to see another familiar face, but you come with a heart that is hungry for the Word of God. And because that's such an important thing, we don't do this haphazardly. We don't do it carelessly. Um, we don't do it because it draws a big crowd, because obviously it doesn't. Um, <laughs> but we do it because the Lord has instructed us to do it. Amen? And he did that in the early church, and, and he instructed them to do that. And the truths that we're going to be looking at, not only this morning, but for the weeks and months to come as we go through Romans chapter 9, they're deep, they're challenging, and they're profound. Um, we're in the second message of this little mini-series I called Cultivating a Burden for the Lost. And last week we looked at part one, and uh, as we... Look at Romans chapter 9. Some commentators say this is probably one of the hardest sections of Scripture to study and to understand. So I would covet your prayers as we go through this together. Um, and uh, I'll be praying for you that God would give you uh, a mind of Christ. And you pray for me as I study and prepare each week because it's very challenging. Um, but let's read... And I'll read for you, and you can follow along in your Bibles. Romans chapter 9, and I want to read once again verses 1 to 5. It's going to be our text again for this morning. I'm speaking the truth, Paul says, in Christ I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and caught off from, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to their flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. And then he caps it off with, Amen. Uh, last week, we, we looked at, basically, we should be burdened for the salvation of lost souls because of the love of Christ and the love of God's truth should compel us to do that. We look first that we should have the love of Christ. We should understand what that means. Um, we looked at four things, that it's impossible to have, that it is possible, excuse me, to have great sorrow in your Christian life at the same time you have great joy in Christ. And many of you probably have unbelievers as friends, relatives, and you pray for them diligently, and you should, and your heart is probably heavy for them. There's sorrow there because they haven't come to Christ yet. Yet at the same time, I want you to understand that God has given you a joy that is only in Christ, and uh, you can have both alongside of each other, and we looked at that last week. The second thing we looked at is, under that first point, was we should be especially burdened for the salvation of those whom we share 
something in common with. Um, And that's what Paul is doing here. He was from the Jewish background, and his burden, his soul was breaking for those whom he had something in common with. And then thirdly, we should be burdened especially for the salvation of those who have hurt us the most. That's a big one. When people hurt us, you know, we don't just damn them to hell. We should go to our knees and we should pray for them. Pray that God would be gracious to them. And then the last thing, lost people won't care how much, uh, how much you know until they know how much you care. And the second point was that we should have this burden for the lost souls because of the fact that God's, uh, the, the love of God's truth compels us. And our primary motive for seeing lost souls saved should be for God's glory. It's not for our own glory. It's not so that we can, you know, it was, I got a uh, text this past week from Daniel uh, Burdine, who's part of a, a street preaching ministry, and he said, hey, Steve, I'm going to be down uh, Redwood City on Friday night. Come down and check it out, you know. So I knew I had some things to do here early on and, and uh, setting up for a CC meeting and things like that, and then, and then I had to get some studying done. And so I thought, well, who, if I can't make it, I wonder who I could text and maybe they'd be interested so I, I texted Hector and, and Hector said I'd love to go and so I thought great so at least we'll have somebody there and uh, so uh, when I got done here at the church I thought well I'm going to drive down there and see and it was kind of drizzly it was cold it was raining um, and there was no parking unfortunately but I was driving up and down Broadway and I thought Dan usually sets up there on that big uh, he sets up a storyboard and everything but it was kind of windy so I guess he didn't bring all that and it was him and another friend and, and Hector and probably some other people but um, I didn't get to stop. But I was driving as I was driving by, and I was looking. You know, I was praying for them, and they weren't on the uh, the big uh, patio there in front of the courthouse. They were right in front of the Fox Theater, <laughs> and all the people were lined up waiting to go into the show. And there's Hector and, and Dan and some other out there, you know, preaching, sharing the gospel. And Dan said that uh, I said, "Boy, I said uh, you had quite a crowd there," and. Um, he said, yeah. I said, did you have any problems? He said, well, the, the Redwood City PD detained me for a few moments, but they, 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 nothing they could do because it's purely within their right to do that. But uh, the theater owner wasn't very happy with somebody out there sharing the gospel with his patrons waiting to go into the show. But um, So they had, a, they had an interesting time, okay? And I, I just bring that up because, you know, they weren't down there for their own glory. They weren't down there saying, hey, look at us, look at us. They were down there, what, to glorify Christ. And whenever we share the gospel, whenever we go out and we, we have a burden for the lost and we share and we, we see someone graciously come to Christ, you know, that's not something we pin on our chest and say, oh, look at what I did. I won that person to Christ. No, that's something that God does. We're simply, we simply take the message to the lost. And then the second point we looked under uh, uh, point two of last week was we should be especially burdened for the salvation of those who enjoy the greatest spiritual privileges. And we talked about how Israel, Paul's burden for Israel, and it, it showed us there in verse uh, four that they were um, they belonged to the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the, the promises. And all those things kind of go together. You know, it's... it's um, uh, if, you, if you look at that, you can, you can, you can hook them up, and uh, they kind of play off of each other. But those were all privileges that the Israel had. And, you know, us as Christians, we have certain privileges. We were, we were born in America. We have the ability to come to a church and hear the Bible taught. We have the ability to go out onto our, our streets and share the gospel with people. Those are all privileges. Uh, we have Christian radio that we listen to. We have Christian TV that we watch. We have books coming out our ears. Okay, there's a lot of countries that, boy, they'd they'd give anything just to have one book. Okay, and so we forget all these things. And today I want us to look at these sections of script, this section of scripture, one through five, basically from the heart of Paul. I want us to stop and kind of look at his heart. And so there's some things that I want to draw out from this text that we didn't necessarily do uh, last week. It'll be a little overlapping, but not, not completely overlapping. And do you remember when you were younger and you, uh, you got your first bicycle? You know, I mean bicycle, not tricycle. Okay, we're starting at bicycle. So you get your first bicycle and, you know, maybe you had the training wheels on for a couple weeks, whatever, and then it came time. Dad or mom, whoever, took you out and said, okay, this is the big day. You're going to learn how to ride a bike. And you're going to learn how to ride it 
without these little sissy wheels on the back. Okay, you're going to learn to ride that bike like it should be ridden on two wheels. And there was probably a lot of fear, trepidation going on in your heart, and your parents probably took you out into the street. Hopefully it was a flat street, not a hill, uh, but, you know, a flat street. And they kind of walked behind you, and they carefully warned you, look, you need to learn how to brake. You understand you need to learn how to balance this bicycle. Now, you know, you're probably going to fall. You're probably going to fall, and you're probably going to maybe even get hurt. But I got some Band-Aids here in my pocket. If you get hurt, we'll take care of it. It's not going to be a big deal. You got a helmet on, so you're all safe. When I was growing up, we never wore helmets. Um, So it was just kind of like, what's a helmet, you know? Um, And, you know, when you first started pedaling and you were on your own and you thought, wow, this is cool, and then, you know, you crash into the curb or something, right? And you end up getting hurt, and your parents come by, and you're thinking, well, hey, aren't you supposed to prevent this, you know? Well, that's not always true. You know, sometimes, as parents, you have to let your children go through certain things that are potentially harmful to them. But you know that in the end, it's for their betterment. It's, it's for their growth. Um, see, we've already learned here in the book of Romans that God has ordained evil to exist. He didn't cause the evil, but he allows it to exist. And he does so um, so that our blessing can be unveiled. And, And what I mean by that is there's no other way to experience and worship God for his redeeming power unless you have been redeemed from something. <laughs> if sin didn't exist, then we wouldn't need a Savior. All right? Um, but for God's ultimate plan, his ultimate authority, his ultimate sovereignty, he has allowed evil, even evil, to exist for his divine purpose. Um, there's really no other way to see God's final justice against sin and, and his restorative graces unless first you understand that evil was ordained by God. He allowed it to happen. He didn't cause it. But in his sovereign plan, he allowed it. And so there are times in our lives, even our Christian lives, I would, I would say, that, that we feel abandoned. <laughs> uh, we may feel the presence of God is somehow away from us. We may feel that evil is, is um, contrary to the nature of God. We may feel that presence in our lives. And nonetheless, we're called to trust him. And we say, like at the end of, of Romans chapter 8, you know, all things, we know that all things, good, the bad, the evil, will work together in spite of what they look like. Because we know that God is in control, even though we feel all this evil around us. Um, we know that God, you, you take evil and you turn it into something that ultimately gives you glory. Ultimately. How that works, it's beyond me. But that's why he's God and I'm not. God took the worst evil of all. Think of it this way. He took the worst evil of all, the murder of his own son. And he ordained it. And he made it into the greatest thing that we could ever even imagine. The redemption of mankind. So we entrust our lives to God. Even the bad stuff, we entrust to him. And we even thank him for it. Even though that's difficult to do at times, Job said, bless him and thank him, not only for the good stuff, but even for the bad stuff. So we entrust our lives to a sovereign God and to his will as believers. There's no other way to see God's wonderful blessing than to go through this section of hardship and evil in the world. And when you speak of the will of God, you have to understand what that means. What, what do we mean when we say the will of God? We kind of throw that term around. Oh, I'm looking for the will of God, or I've found the will of God, or I haven't found the will of God. Well, God has basically, I'll just make it real simple, the moral will of God, or the decreed will of God, 
and the sovereign will of God. I mean, this is a whole study in and of itself, all right? So this is just kind of the, 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 what's left over um, from the table, you know, kind of like leftovers because we don't have time to go through this whole thing. But God's moral will or decreed will are those things flowing from his perfect godly nature and all that he decrees. What do I mean? Uh, the Bible says that God hates divorce. The Bible says that thou shalt not kill. Uh, the Bible says that children, you should obey your parents. Um, God commands in Acts 17.30, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Peter even talks about God's moral will. 2 Peter 3.9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's God's moral will. That's God's decreed will. Uh, you could say that, that God wants all these things to happen. It's in accordance with his, his, his morality. Um, but you also have to understand that he never wants anything evil to happen. He never wants one sin to happen. And when it does, it grieves him deeply. We saw this in our study of Romans early on, how even we can grieve the Holy Spirit. The emotions are connected to his moral will. God grieves and he mourns when sin happens, when evil happens. He's not up there just smiling, saying, oh, I got this. No, he's grieving. I want, to know, I want you to know this morning that Christ knows your sin. He knows your struggle. He knows your temptation. He knows the evil that you are encountering, encountering far better than even you do. He knows that. So when you're going through something hard, I want you to understand that God grieves. He mourns. That's his, his, his uh, moral will. Secondly, he has a sovereign will. He has a sovereign will. We sang about that this morning. Um, because God is in control. I mean, whether you want to admit it or not, it doesn't matter. It's important to remember both of these things. I mean, God in his sovereign will allowed evil to exist. I mean, isn't that a weird concept? That's a hard thing to get your mind around. And even if it means for a time in this era of human history, the, the, the violation of his moral will because of that evil... That's part of his plan. And it, as that plan unfolds, that's how his blessing is unveiled to us even more and more. It means more to us. And not just some of them, but all of his blessings. You know, it's, it's interesting because the Bible speaks of angels. And one thing, if you, if you know one thing about angels, um, they're always men. They're always male. But they're also, uh, they can't be redeemed. There's no way for an angel to ever be redeemed. And so the angels are almost a little bit jealous when they look at us. <laughs> because we have, we have something the angels can never have. We have redemption. We have the ability to be saved from our sin. And it's all for God's glory. And they look on us and they wish that they could feel that kind of glory. They can, never can. Only we can because we are the ones that were saved from evil. Um, the very evil that God has ordained running contrary to his moral will. Uh, now, when it comes to the doctrine of God's sovereignty, it's always important to remember both sides of this coin. There's two sides to this coin. There's God's sovereign will and there's God's moral will. When you talk about the sovereign will of God, you can't forget the moral will of God. When you read about Jesus in the Gospels judging and condemning Israel for false religion, you have to remember this is the same Jesus who saw the Israelites and was moved with compassion. When you think about Jesus who goes into the temple, he turns over all the tables, the money changers, 
And he takes out this whip, basically, and, and preaches and condemns and literally sticks his finger figuratively kind of in, in the chest of everybody who's there. Pointing out the, the false religion of the day. You have to remember also that Jesus wept over the plight of mankind. That his heart ached. And he was hurt and he was moved with compassion. When you read another subject of God's sovereignty, when you read about things like election or you read about things like predestinations, as you see in Ephesians chapter 1, that he chose us before the foundation of the world. You have to remember also the other side of the coin. Well, what's the other side of the coin? Our responsibility. Man's responsibility. Because the Bible says, whosoever will. You have to remember both. You can't just land on God's sovereignty and just stay there and say, okay, well, that's it. Scripture affirms both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We have to accept both sides of that truth. Because if you don't, you're not going to really have a proper, true, biblical understanding of salvation, of evangelism, of a lot of things. Uh, sometimes when you look in the Bible, it's interesting. If you look in the Bible and you kind of look at passages that deal with the sovereignty of God, um, in particular when it comes to the idea of election or predestination, both of those words are used frequently in the Bible. Um, and we've gone over those in the past. But when it comes to these doctrines, right alongside, almost within the same passage, is always the doctrine of our own responsibility. The doctrine of God's sovereignty, but also the doctrine of man's responsibility. The doctrine of God's moral will. What he demands, what he commands. Um, Second Peter, I mentioned this earlier, 3.9, God is patient toward you that he is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's God's moral will. God wants every person in his moral will, he wants every person to be saved. But just before God talks about the people, if you look at back at that passage in Second Peter chapter 3, if you jump up a couple verses, right before that, he talks about the people who are marked out for destruction. <laughs> that's, not, that's God's sovereign will. They're right there, both in the same passage. Or if you turn over to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. This is a, a neat passage because it shows us very clearly both of these. Look at, at verse, it's talking about uh, a God's sovereign will. And he says there in verse 29 and 30, For it has been granted to you, that's God's sovereign will, has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. When you stop and you think about that, both of these are part of God's sovereign will. That you be granted to believe, first of all, that's God's sovereign will. And that you be granted to suffer. But then, if you look at chapter 2, Philippians, look at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, Philippians 2, 12, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Wait a minute, Paul, what are you saying here? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? But look at the next verse. For it is God who works in you, <laughs> both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Wow. Both of them are right there. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but you know what? It's God that's working in you. It's both. Well, how can that be? I don't know. I'm just here to tell you what the Bible says. Or you turn over to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. We love this, this verse, at least verse 12. We hear this quoted all the time. John 1, 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
We like that, right? Oh, we received Christ. Oh, I believed in his name. What did he do? He gave me the right to become the child of God. Wow. Look at me. Wait a minute. Don't stop there. Look at verse 13. Who were born not of blood. Wait a minute. Nor the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man. But of who? Of God. Both man's responsibility. Do we need to receive him as our savior? Definitely. But why do we receive him? Because it's the will of God. The sovereign will of God. People are responsible what they do for what they do with the gospel. You're responsible when you walk out these doors because you will have heard the gospel several times. And if you haven't trusted Christ as your Lord and savior yet, you're responsible. For whatever light God gives you. That's what Roman 2 talks about. So that if you ultimately reject Christ and end up in hell, you can't say, wait a minute, I never knew. I didn't know. April 24th, 2016. 11.05. You heard the gospel. And those who reject the gospel do so voluntarily. They do so voluntarily. Um, John chapter 5, verse 40, Jesus says this. He says, you are unwilling to come to me. You're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. He told unbelievers in John chapter 8, verse 24, unless you believe that I am God, you shall die in your sin. It's man's responsibility. But I think the greatest place to look to see these side by side is turn with me over to the Gospel of John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Because it's just here so clear. You don't even have to turn eight pages. You can just look right on one page and it's all right there. John chapter 6. The Lord combines both the divine sovereignty of God and human responsibility. Look at verse 37. John chapter 6 verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. Why? Because God's sovereign. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Look at verse 40 couple verses down. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. That's man's responsibility. We need to believe in him. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's God's sovereignty. Doesn't stop there. Look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has what? Eternal life. All the way down, verse 65. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. See, you, you see both man's responsibility and God's sovereignty in the same passage. Now, how both of those truths are true simultaneously, like I said, I do not know. I cannot understand that. I cannot explain it. I have a human mind. Only God can understand this. So you either look at that and go, wow, that is just a real brain twister. I mean, I, you know, that's like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Well, I don't know. I wonder how many can. I mean, you can sit all, up all night and talk about that kind of stuff if you want. I don't think that's being a good steward of your time. Because God says there are some things that you're not going to know. There are some things that only God will know. And he will understand. But that doesn't mean... Just because we cannot understand something, it doesn't mean that it's not true. God's sovereignty, I'm going to say this very clearly, God's sovereignty is a doctrine that offends something in our minds. It offends something in our flesh. The idea that God is in control and we're not, that's offensive to us in our flesh. Because, you know, we want to set our own destiny. We want to be self-determined. 
We do not want to believe just naturally in our flesh what we sang this morning, that God is in control, that Jesus commands our destiny. We don't want to think that. We want to think we're the captain of the ship. We're the ones in charge here. God has got nothing to do with it. That's what we want to believe. It's all about me. It's all about my will. And we ignore the sovereignty of God. One pastor said that when we were born, we were born Pelagianism. We were were born into Pelagianism. Pelagius was a fourth century, he was a heretic, basically. And he basically taught that God had to bow at the altar of man's decisions. Augustine is the one who kind of came out against Pelagius. And, see, we're born thinking that, you know, we're in control of this deal. And, and even pastors and churches think that, okay, this is, you know, we're in control of this. We're going to generate this. We're going to make this happen. And so they naturally land right there. The flesh wants to land there, that we're in control, God's not. So we never go to the idea that God is sovereign, that God is in control, we're not. They focus on man's responsibility, which is true, as we've just seen. Man's responsibility is a doctrine in the Bible. They also talk about God's moral will, the demands of God, but they completely ignore God's sovereignty. And so a lot of us growing up in church, we only saw one side of this coin. We saw the side of the coin that says, oh, it's your decision. It's your thing. It's man's responsible. You're, you're, you're the captain of your own destiny. Just do the right thing. Work hard. Be a good mother, father, husband, wife. Go to church. Do all these things. But they completely ignore God's sovereignty. So they grow up thinking that it's man's responsibility. It is man choosing God. But you never heard anything about God choosing you. You never heard about God's sovereign choice of you. You may have read John chapter 1 or John chapter 6 and you never thought anything about it. You know, you like verse 12 there, 112. Oh, you're the, you know, boy, we become children of God. You know, we're receiving him. We're believing in him. But for some reason, you never got to verse 13. See, the fact of the matter is, is that in our flesh, we really... Ignore doctrines like the sovereignty of God. So it's God's sovereign will and God's moral will. And then you have man's responsibility. Election, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of man's responsibility are both in the Bible. And see, when you neglect one and you look only at one exclusively, you don't look at the other side of the coin, you get a distorted not only view of God, but you get a distorted view of salvation and evangelism and prayer. Your whole Christian experience is distorted. You have a distorted view of suffering and pain in the presence of evil. And when you start leaning toward that Arminian viewpoint, which is basically a a watered-down view of of, uh, Pelagianism, if you start believing that God has to do what you want, what you end up with is this God in heaven, this pale-skinned, kind of weak grandpa who's just hoping that Jesus died for somebody if they would just choose him. Please, someone accept my son. I don't want him to die in vain. And he's just somehow leaving it up to all of humanity to determine all of eternity. I mean, I don't know about you, but is that the kind of God you want to serve? I don't. I mean, if you lean in that direction, basically you're saying, I, as a Christian, made a better choice than those non-Christians. I had the common sense to see that Jesus was the way. I'm just a little bit better, maybe just by a hair or two, but I'm a little bit better than everybody else because I chose Christ. Feeds your ego, feeds your flesh. 
And when you start to dethrone God and get rid of his sovereignty, and you start to put yourself on the throne, trust me, beloved, that's not a place you want to be. On the other hand, if you start ignoring verses about man's responsibility, say you believe in God's sovereignty, say you believe in election, but you start ignoring verses about man's responsibility, and you focus merely on the sovereignty of God, you know what? You're on a slippery slope that's eventually going to end up into something, a doctrine called hyper-Calvinism. Now, there's a lot of Calvinists, Calvinists that are hyper, but... Uh, hyper-Calvinism is a technical term, okay? And it refers to this movement in the 1800s. And it was also called this, the anti-missions movement. They, they, they focus solely on the sovereignty of God. And here's what they believe. They, they believe, hey, you know what? God is sovereign. So if God is sovereign, we do nothing. We don't have to do anything. We have no responsibility whatsoever. So they ignored all the verses about human responsibility, about our duty as believers. They even got to the point where they said, you don't even have to repent. You don't even have to have faith. It's all God's work. God just chooses chooses whoever he chooses, and we don't do anything about it. We can't do anything. So therefore, you don't have to evangelize. Why? Why are you going to go tell somebody about Christ? If they're saved, they're saved, right? See where this is going to get sticky real quick? You don't have to send any missionaries. Why? If God wants those people over there saved, he'll send, you know, they'll get saved somehow because he's the one that saves them. And by the way, you don't even have to pray. Why would you pray? Because if God is in control and he's going to do everything he wants, you're not God. So why would you pray? God does everything. Now, obviously, that movement never gained much traction, clearly, because they never told anybody about Jesus. But... You know, I've never really met somebody who was a hyper-Calvinist, a true hyper-Calvinist. I've met people who kind of lean that way a little bit. But when you start ignoring verses about our responsibility, our duty, how God uses those as a means to affect his sovereign will, again, you get a distorted view of God. See, both of those positions, both of those extremes, if you want to call it uh, a Pelagianism and hyper-Calvinism, those two extremes, God does everything. No, we, we have to, God's bows at our whims. Our efforts to sort, kind of put God in our own box. Both of those two extremes are saying, you know what, I don't understand how God could be both of these, so he's got to be one or the other. It's the same thing scientists do when you talk, tell them about creation. That doesn't make any sense to them, especially if they have no faith. So they have to come up with all these crazy things to believe. How we got here. I mean, I don't know about you, but to me it takes a lot more faith to believe their stuff than it just does to believe that, yeah, there's a God in heaven who controls things and he's powerful enough to say, let there be light and there was light. <laughs> okay, that, that, that doesn't take a lot of faith for me. But they just can't seem to deal with that. And so when you try to put God in a box, when you put God in the box of human responsibility or God in the box of he's just, you're going to look at his sovereignty only, um, you're going to find yourself coming up with very illogical and silly conclusions. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man is something that we have to affirm, we have to admit, even though we don't understand how it all works together. Because the Bible teaches that our minds are what? Finite. We don't, we can't, I mean, there's probably some very, very, very smart people in this room. But you're not as smart as God. God is God, we are not. We have to remember that. We can't map out the mind of God. We can't sit down and say, well, let me figure this out because sometimes our logic isn't going to fit. You have to admit your choice of him when you came to Christ, it was real. It was volitional. You know, when I came to Christ and I wanted him to be my savior and I admitted my sinfulness and cried out to a holy God and said, Lord, yeah, I guess I need to be saved. Save me. Nobody was twisting, you know, the pastor didn't have my arm behind me back. Say that prayer, you know, you better say that prayer. Nobody was twisting my arm. I did that of my own volition. But I also understood that God was working 
in my heart. And without God working in my heart, I wouldn't have gotten to the point of saying, yeah, you know what, I, I want to do this. It was our choice to come to him at the same time it was predicated by his choice of you. And when you really begin to grapple with this and understand this, it, it really just makes so much sense. It makes sense as far as your salvation is concerned. It makes sense as far as going out and, and witnessing and sharing Christ with other people. But I think the problem is we're, we, we're not humble enough to just leave it there. We want it just to mesh perfectly. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, and, and it's not going to. And so when you, when, you, when you come up with things that you cannot understand, it takes a humble person to say, you know what, I don't understand this, but this is what it says. And I know it's true because it's God's word. I don't have to explain it. So back to Romans 9, Paul, Paul is getting ready to launch into all this. Okay, he's going to get into some very uh, heady things that we're going to be talking about. So please eat your Cheerios and take your vitamins and everything for the next couple months before you come to church because you're going to need it. All right? Um, he says things like this in Romans 9. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What? Well, that's what it says. Well, it doesn't really mean, well, that's what it says. Or how do you explain this? He talks about vessels for honor and vessels for wrath. Whoa. And he made both. How do you explain that? It's the sovereignty of God. See, and what we have to remember is that all this is pointing to the fact that in this era, God has chosen primarily the Gentiles rather than the Jews. And that's what he's going to get into later on in the chapter. That's the point that Paul's getting to. And he wants us to understand, I mean, today, there may be some here who are, are of Jewish background and have come to faith in Christ, Messianic Jews, that's fine. But you know what? That's not the rule. That's the exception. Most Jews would not say Jesus is my Messiah. <laughs> they don't have that understanding. And so what he's going to do is he's going to show us that to teach this doctrine of election, all right, as he begins to unfold this doctrine of election, he's, he's showing that, that God has chosen primarily the Gentiles rather than the Jews for this time today. Are they still his chosen people? Definitely. But for right now, the time frame we're working in right now, God is working primarily with the Gentiles. There's always a remnant, okay? And in the future, there will be a, 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 a turning of the Jewish people to the Messiah. And the Bible says that a lot of that is going to be provoked by jealousy. And they're going to respond to their Messiah eventually. But right now, biblical salvation, justification by faith in Jesus Christ is appropriated mostly by Gentiles. And this is what Paul is beginning to launch into. That's why we have to lay this foundation, this relationship between Jew and Gentile. Where does this go? How does this work out? God's future with the Jews are that his promises are going to be kept, right? There's some people today that believe, oh, no, no, the church, now the church replaced Israel. So all the promises to Israel now go to the church. That's called replacement theology. That is not biblical. That is not from the Lord. That is wrong theology. God's promises to Israel are still valid. All right? He, the, the Israel has not replaced, the church has not replaced Israel. We do not believe that. And so Paul has to help these people understand this. And when, God, when Paul was teaching this and sharing this, Romans um, 9, the aspects of what we're going to learn here in the next few weeks and months together, the idea that God has, has chosen primarily the Gentiles here 
for salvation at this time. He's working mainly with them rather than the Jews. That would really bother a lot of first century Jewish folks, especially the ones who started going down with the, the, the Judaizers. And these are people who taught that if you become a Jew, um, if, 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 you become a, uh, if you become a Christian, you have to go through all of the ceremonial stuff to become a Jew. It's just kind of a crazy, crazy teaching. And they would have really been bothered by what Paul was saying here. Um, they would have really been bothered because, see, Paul was what? He was a Jew, right? He was a Jew. I mean, they would have probably even called him an anti-Semite. You're a Jew yourself and you're rejecting your own people, Paul? What are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. Especially to the Jews that hadn't repented. Because Paul's relationship was with the Jewish people. He had gone lots of places and he had taught in a lot of different places and they had rejected Christ. And therefore, they had rejected Paul. They hated Paul. They punished Paul. They persecuted Paul. So the idea that somehow the Gentiles are going to graft, be grafted by God into this promise that only Israel has was just uh, totally wrong in their eyes. And he, he wanted them to clearly understand that you know, he didn't have some vendetta against his own people. That wasn't his motivation. And so to, to do this, I want to share a little bit about Paul's heart this morning, his heart toward the Jews. Um, because possibly they looked at Paul as he was you know, very theological and his teaching, very systematic. They probably, you know, you're just a cold-hearted, doctrinal kind of guy, Paul. You don't care about people. You're just an embittered theologian. And so Paul really opens up his heart here, and he wants to share his, his, what's going on inside of him. Um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when you're teaching that, that child to ride a bike, you're telling them, you know, you, you may fall, you may get hurt, you know, but the reward is going to be cool. This, this is going to be neat. You're going to be able to ride a bike. So some of these things, you know, you're going to have a hard time understanding as we go through these, these doctrines and these teachings in the next couple of weeks and months. And I just want you to, to remember that, you know what, don't, don't reject the truth simply because you cannot understand it. God shares this with us out of a heart of love. And so that's what Paul does too. Our pride, in all honesty, may be a little beaten up by the time we're done with these studies. Because it's not all about us. But um, that's good. That's good. So there's several things here that Paul wants us to see. And the first one here is authenticity. All that to get to the message, okay? Authenticity. I mean, you know, Paul said to the Corinthians, follow me as I follow who? Christ. I mean, follow me as I follow Christ. So this is what we want to do. We want to mimic Paul. And so the first verse there, verse 1, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. There's kind of three layers here of this authenticity. Um, First of all, he says, I'm speaking the truth. He's calling upon none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, he is my affirmation. I am in Christ and he is in me. And he's going to verify what I'm going to about to tell you. Um, now, if someone doesn't know Christ and they don't respect Christ very much, you know, they may use Jesus' name, Christ's name all the time as cuss words, right? It doesn't mean anything to them. But if you know the Lord is your Savior, you're probably a lot less prone to do something like that. Why? Because you respect Christ. You know that he saved you. You understand that that would be offensive to him to use his name in vain. And so you wouldn't do that. And so Paul is saying, look, you know, I'm invoking the name of Christ here, not in a casual way, but in a very serious way. I want you to understand that when I'm bringing Christ into the picture, I really mean business. This is something that's very important. Um, Because he was the author and the finisher of Paul's faith. 
He's being deadly serious here because he respects Christ. Um, in Romans 1, 1, Paul calls himself a slave of Christ, a bondservant of Christ. I mean, if he was a servant of Christ, he probably believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he died, that he rose. He says he believes in the resurrection of the dead. Chapter 3, Romans, talks about the, he talks about justification by faith in Christ, that Christ is the object of our faith. Verse 24, Romans 3, says we are redeemed through Christ. Chapter 5 of Romans, he talks about Abraham. Even Abraham looked to the future of Christ's sacrifice, was justified by faith. Romans 6, we're identified with Christ. It says that we were dead to the old Adam. That we're immersed in him, that we are in Christ. Romans 7 says that we are to live like Christ. Romans 8 says that we are heirs with him, co-heirs with Christ. I mean, Paul definitely had a high view of Christ. So when he invokes the name of Christ, you better believe that he's being authentic. He's being serious. And he goes on to say in the same verse that he's not lying. It's a negative way of saying the same thing. There's no deception here. I'm, there's no smoke and mirrors. I'm not playing games. I'm not exaggerating. This isn't something that's just politically expedient for me to tell you Romans. I'm not playing some kind of game with you. I'm doing this because I'm for real. I'm not lying. Then the last part of the verse there, he even talks about his conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It says his conscience doesn't run contrary to what, what is the truth. I'm being sincere. I mean, we know that our consciences can be seared, right? I mean, seared in, in a bad way. Like we can, we can sin and sin and sin, and pretty soon, you know, we just kind of accept it. But here, Paul is saying, you know what? This isn't the case. My conscience is being controlled by the Holy Spirit. So when I'm telling you things, it's, it's kind of like God's telling you this. So Paul calls on both the Son and the Spirit to testify to his authenticity. He's a genuine man. He's authentic. He can be believed. His words were not just political. You're going to be tempted at some point in this study, in the next few weeks and months, you're going to be challenged in your belief. You're going to be challenged in your belief in your own image of who your God is. And your, your flesh is going to say, hey, wait a minute. Where is this coming from? Is this just some cold doctrine? I want you to go back to the words of Paul. Because Paul is speaking these words from his heart. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Not only is this inspired truth, but it comes from a man who longs for the salvation of the lost. It's a very authentic passage. How do we apply that? Simply ask yourself this question. Am I authentic? Am I that authentic? Am I this kind of real person? Or am I playing games? Do I manipulate people? Am I less than authentic to people in my own life? So Paul was authentic. Secondly, quickly, we'll finish this with this one. He was passionate and this isn't some lovey-dovey kind of thing. Pathos is the word here. It's a word where we get empathy or sympathy. It talks about Paul grieving in verse 2, that I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul isn't just putting on a bunch of crocodile tears to impress the people that are listening to him. This is a man that is in anguish even when he was all alone. I was reading through commentary by Ray Stedman. He tells a story in his commentary. Tells a story of a congregation that fired its pastor. Just fired him. And someone asked a parishioner, why did you guys fire your pastor? And they answered this way. They said, well, the pastor just kept on telling us that we were going to hell. Really? Well, what does your new pastor say? Well, he keeps telling us we're going to hell too. 
So the person said, well, what's the difference? Well, the churchgoer replied, when the first pastor said it, when he said we were going to hell, he sounded like he was glad. But when our new pastor said it, he sounded like it was breaking his heart. See, that's true anguish. That's, that's being sorrowful. See, there's a lot of people that have anxiety and anguish, and they have it for all the wrong reasons. As a youth pastor, I used to deal with parents all the time that were stressed out over their kids. They were in anguish over their children. And they were in so much anguish, they couldn't even listen to reason. And basically, they were just trying to be their kids' friends, and, and they just wanted their kids to like them. And so the kids got away with murder. Very undisciplined. Households. And when you say, look, you need to crack down on this, you need to do that, well, they won't like that. And so they were in anguish. They were frustrated because they had a, a tried relationship with their kids, but they weren't willing to dismiss that anguish by employing biblical principles of parenting. The prime goal was to have the kids like mommy and daddy. So whatever the kids wanted to do, that's what they got to do. So there's, there's a lot of reasons that people have anguish today, but this is not the case with Paul. That's not the kind of anguish Paul is talking about. Paul had all his passion for people for the right reasons. And what were the right reasons for Paul to lose sleep? Why was Paul in so much anguish and sorrow? Well, that's what we're going to look at next week. The third point is that he had evangelistic zeal. He had evangelistic zeal. He was in anguish because as one of his people, his countrymen, he wanted them to know Christ. He had a zeal that would would put all of us to shame. This man wanted the gospel to go to the Jews and it troubled him. It caused him much anguish, much sorrow because they weren't responding to the gospel. They hadn't received the Messiah. Look at verse 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were cut off, were cursed from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I said last week, that's not something I could do. I wouldn't give up my salvation for anybody. Maybe that's just me, but I'm not at that point. (laughs) See, your relationship with Christ, my relationship with Christ, is the greatest treasure that I have. And most of us probably wouldn't give it up for anything. But Paul was sharing the anguish in his heart. Because really, I mean, we don't have to, right? We don't have to give up our salvation for somebody else. And it wouldn't work anyway. (laughs) You know, who are we, right? Um, And so Paul's desire here is, is he wants us to see his anguish. He wants us to see that you know what, this is the Paul that says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is the Paul that said, I came to know you so that you know Christ and him crucified. This is the Paul that kept on being motivated in spite of verbal abuse, in spite of physical abuse, in, in, in spite of stoning and lashings and shipwrecks and persecution and slavery and imprisonment. You know, that's why when you read the end of the book of Acts, it almost just dot, dot, dot at the end because it's like this story continues. It doesn't just end there. Because Paul's going on. And as you look at all the apostles and what they did to spread the gospel around the world, most of them died a martyr's death. And he says, you know what? My life is nothing save the fact that I get to share the gospel with other people. And Paul is getting ready to say God chooses whom he chooses. He's getting ready to say vessels were for blessing, vessels were for wrath. And some people are getting to a point where they say, well, if God's in control, then I don't really have to tell anybody about anything now, do I, Paul? It's all done, it's all finished, God settled everything. There's no responsibility, there's no evangelism. But that wasn't Paul. Paul. 
because he believed both in the sovereign will of God and the moral will of God. He believed both in the sovereign will of God and man's responsibility. That God elected people and it was his duty to come and to bring the gospel to the elect so they would respond. He took both of those things very seriously. And there are many people throughout history that did the same thing. You think of people like John Knox. John Knox said, give me Scotland lest I die. Here's a man who stood. I mean, and by the way, it's not talking about military. You know, he's not, he wasn't William Wallace. He's John Knox. Okay, so he wanted Scotland to repent. He wanted people to be saved. And he would die so that they could do that. Henry Martin said this, Oh, that I would be a flame of fire in the hand of my God. David Brainerd said this, Let me burn out for God. And you know what? He did. He was dead by the age 29. He was witnessing to Native Americans. You think of all these people, John Edwards, William Carey, uh, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon. All these men held to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, and yet they held a very strong evangelistic zeal. That's what Paul was like. I want to ask you this morning, is that you? You may be sitting here this morning saying, you know what, I don't believe in the sovereignty of God. What's sad is you probably still don't tell people about Jesus, which is pretty scary when you think about it. You may have the corrupt notion this morning that somehow God's plans are all about you, that somehow his plans hinges on you. And you know what? You still don't tell people about Jesus. When you look at Acts chapter 4 and you, you look at what this early church went through, regardless of all the persecution, the trial, the imprisonment, regardless of all the inconveniences of their day, I mean, you think about the standard of living under Roman rule, it was very low. When you look at the book of Acts chapter 4, you couldn't keep these believers from sharing the gospel with the people around them. You couldn't stop them. And here we are in the 21st century here with all the, the freedom, with all the ease, and we can't get Christians, even the most dedicated church-going Christians, to tell one person about Jesus. Why? Because there's no evangelistic zeal. I'm here to tell you, maybe we need a little persecution. Maybe we need to endure what the early church endured to prove whether or not we are truly in the faith. Because you know what, beloved, if you're in the faith, if you truly have a relationship with Christ, you cannot help but tell people about his saving grace. You can't help to be like Paul, to have that evangelistic zeal. Because Paul loved his people desperately. He wanted them to know Christ more than anything. He was authentic. He was passionate. And he had a zeal that puts most of ours to shame. Father, we pray this morning that as we leave this place, Lord, as we walk out in this lost and dying world, that we would understand that we have the truth, that we're on the right side, that in the end, the Bible says that we win. But Father, you've left us here in the process. You've left us here in the meantime to really continue to live a life for Christ. And as believers, Lord, help us not to grow cold. Lord, Help us to understand that something as simple as, as, as a couple hours in a class can encourage us in the area of evangelistic zeal to be able to share even a simple piece of paper with some truth written on it with those around us, whether it's a waiter at a restaurant or someone at a gas station or someone at a supermarket or maybe a boss at work or a co-worker. Why are we so afraid to speak out for Jesus? Why are we so afraid to share the gospel with those around us? If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Christ, I want you to understand that you've been given every opportunity. This isn't something we can do for you. This is something that, that God does that you do, as we talked about. You bring your sin to Christ. And when you bring your sin to Christ, he's willing to forgive that sin.
because you're coming to him because you understand that he's the only one you can go to. That he died for you. He will change you, but he'll change you in, in a great way. Don't be afraid of the change. Don't fear the change. Embrace it. He will give you a life that you could not even imagine. Free from the burden of sin. He gives you the spirit to dwell within you, to live this life he's called you to live. And it's a life that's filled with so much blessing, so much joy, so much grace. You stop looking over your shoulder because you know God is your back. Father, we pray this morning that you would make these truths go deep into our heart. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.